Welcome to Episode 7 of our Chapel Podcast series, Fruit of the Spirit. This week's fruit is generosity, brought to you by Trinity College Queensland, presented by Simon Gomesall. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be uh, sharing. Um, as you know, as already been said, we're working through the fruit of the Spirit at the moment, and generosity is the particular flavour that I've been assigned to address. It's probably because I've been hanging out with the likes of Paul Jones for too long that I've selected an obscure Old Testament passage to provide the scaffolding for this particular reflection on the topic of generosity. So I'm sure you know the Book of Two Kings in the Old Testament documents the seesawing tale of the nation of Israel in ancient times And because it's primarily about a nation, it's therefore full of details about kings and political leaders and military leaders and religious leaders and nations and wars and international relationships. It's a a big picture summary about the movers and shakers, the power brokers, the influencers. And yet right in the middle of all of this high-powered national and international narrative, we find a story about an unnamed woman and her grief and her son and her farm. It's really quite remarkable. Amidst the largeness and the importance of all these national and international affairs, right in the middle of the text, we're given this very personal, very individual story. There's nothing like it in ancient texts, other ancient texts from the ancient world. None of them would bother with a narrative about an ordinary person and their concern. And the main character of the story, in some ways, simply couldn't be more innocuous. In ancient times when men dominated the social order without any questions being asked and patriarchy was the norm, we find this story is about a woman, which is yet another example of how the text of the Bible loves to subvert the biases and the prejudices that existed in ancient times. Not only is the story about a woman, but in a culture where names were incredibly important as social identifiers, we find that this woman isn't even named. Which is surely a textual device to imply that by the normal social and cultural standards, this woman was something of an outsider. And yet, in 2 Kings, she features twice in quite some detail. There are two chapters out of her life given to us in the text, which I think tells us something really important about God, that God is interested in everyone. Not just the big names, but the no names. Not just the socially significant, but the socially insignificant. Not just the insiders, but the outsiders. Everybody and their story and their lives matter deeply and profoundly to God. So, before we move on, can I just say, if you feel ordinary and insignificant, this story reminds us that you are just the sort of person in whose life God would love to work. The sort of person to whom he wants to extend his generosity and his goodness. But to make sense of the story, I need to tell you a bit about the first part of this woman's journey that wasn't read to us this morning. It's a very lengthy tale um, from 2 Kings chapter 4, so I'm going to paraphrase it for you, um, but would invite you to feel free to go and read it yourself later on if you have the opportunity. 
So at the time of these stories, the leading prophet in Israel was Elisha. And it's a pretty big deal to be the leading prophet in Israel. So set alongside the fame and the significance of Elisha, this ordinary, nameless woman whom we read about in the text is presented to us as someone who has a big, generous heart and a very rich gift of hospitality. Her life demonstrated the fruit of generosity. We know that because she ends up offering Elisha a meal, not knowing who he is. She just meets him as a traveller on the road, welcomes him into her home. I reckon she was probably a pretty good cook, because whenever Elisha travelled that way, he stopped in for a meal with this woman and her husband. And obviously, Elisha formed a meaningful relationship with the couple, because still not knowing that he was the prophet of Israel but sensing a profound godliness in him nonetheless. This couple decided to do a little renovation out the back and they created a room, um, a space for Elisha and his companions to stay whenever they were passing through. Such was their generosity, such was their sense of hospitality. But the initiator of all this was the wife of the family, this generous Shunammite woman. Now, Elisha often travelled with a colleague, he had a bit of a sidekick, called Gehazi. And as they were both staying in this room offered by the Shunammite woman one time, you know, generously being provided for by her, nothing ever being asked in return, Elisha says to the woman, is there anything I can do for you to repay the hospitality? He says, I'm actually pretty well connected, you know, I'm personal friends with the king, I'm familiar with his court, is there anything you need? And again, we're given a a really interesting insight into this woman's character because she replies, she says, My Lord, I am secure amongst my people. I have everything I need. In other words, I have generously received everything that I need and more. And so it's now my pleasure to be able to give to you and to others. But later on, Gehazi and Elisha are chatting, and Elisha says, oh, there must be something we can do for her. Have you got any ideas, Gehazi? And Gehazi says, well, I was talking to her before, and she mentioned in passing that the great sadness of her life is that she has no children. And so Elisha calls to her, and inspired by the Spirit of God, he makes a prophetic utterance, as prophets are inclined to do, And he says that this time next year, you will be carrying a child in your arms. And she gets really upset. She says, oh, don't you you give me false hope. Don't you dare lead me on like that. You know, almost something too scary to contemplate after the years of disappointment. Frightened that it wouldn't happen. But sure enough, when Elisha comes back the following year, there's a little Shunammite boy running around, or probably, what would he be, three months, crawling around with the Shunammite woman. But there's more to the story still. Many years later, a tragedy occurs and the boy dies. Now, we don't know exactly the cause of his death, but the language that the text uses suggests that he might have had something like an aneurysm. Totally unexpected, nobody's fault. That much is very clear by the way it's portrayed in the, in the, um, in the text. So the, the woman takes her young son's dead body and lies it on the bed where Elisha normally sleeps. And immediately she goes to Elisha 
She shares tragedy of the, the, the news of the tragedy. Um, and again, prompted by the Spirit of God, Elisha rushes to the boy and it appears he's instructed by God to pray in quite a particular way. And uh, he, he lies on the boy's body and the boy comes back to life. So all of that is preamble for the passage that we're looking at today from 2 Kings chapter 8. It's now many years later. In the course of time, the woman's husband has died, but her lifelong friendship with Elisha has continued. And at one point, Elisha warns her of an extended famine that would occur in her region. So she packs up her son and they move across the border to Philistia, where she sits out the famine in a region much closer to the sea where the rainfall would have been much better. But when she returns after the famine, not surprisingly, she finds that her land and her home have been resumed or confiscated by the crown, and so she no longer has access to it. So she decides to seek a royal audience to plead her case and request that her family's land be returned to her. But as the passage tells us, at the very moment that she turns up to seek the king's counsel, the king just happens to be in conversation with Gehazi. And is asking him to recount some of the stories of the ways that God used to work through the prophet Elijah in the past. And Gehazi is retelling the one about the Shumanites, uh, woman's son's birth, you know, in unusual circumstances, and then his tragic death. And then Elisha brings him back to life again, when in walks the woman and her son, whom I presume by now was a young adult. And Gehazi says, blow me down. That's them. This is the woman. That's the son. These are the people that I'm telling you about. And the king is so excited to encounter this woman, who by now is an object of what had become one of the legendary stories of the nation, that he returns her land to her without hesitation, even offering to give her the income that the crown has taken from the working of the land in the seven years that she's been away, which wouldn't have been much because it was famine, uh, but nevertheless would have helped. The timing was remarkable. The implication in the text is that this was some kind of divine appointment. Divine appointments obviously don't happen every minute of the day, but there are moments in life when God does seem to orchestrate the timing of things to accomplish that which might not otherwise happen. John Goldingay, in his commentary on First and Second Kings, points out that whilst it does appear that God arranged this remarkable set of circumstances, we have to remember that there was nothing circumstantial or coincidental about the woman's choices to act with generosity, consistently offering Elisha a meal and then creating a hospitable space for him year after year. That was simply a loving and charitable and generous choice. Nor was there anything coincidental about Elisha's life of prayer and the depth of relationship that he had with God that allowed him to act on the woman's behalf so dramatically. All of which, I think, lead us to two important reflections on the nature of generosity. The first thing is that for generosity to really be generosity, it has to be given expecting nothing in return. Because as soon as you give, hoping to get something back, it's no longer generosity. I wonder if you've ever heard the story of the carrot and the horse. There was a farmer who loved his king deeply and profoundly. 
And one day, he grew this huge carrot, and bigger than any he had grown before, and he brought it to the king and he said, my liege, this is the greatest thing that I ever have produced or ever will produce. I'd like to give it to you as a token of my esteem. And as he walked away, the king said, wait, what a delight and joy that you've given this to me. I would like to give you a double portion of your land. I'm going to double your land out of the royal estate. You'll have twice the, the farm that you had before. And the man went home rejoicing. Now a nobleman was there in the court watching all of this happen. And the nobleman raised horses. And he thought to himself, wow. If the king would give that kind of land for a carrot, what kind of land would he give for a horse? And so the nobleman comes, bringing his best horse that he's ever bred, probably the finest horse in the kingdom. And he says, my liege, this is the finest horse I've ever produced. Please receive it as a token of my esteem. And the king looked at him, and then the king looked through him. And he said, you disgust me. Get out of my sight. The nobleman said, what are you talking about? He said, this horse is a much better gift than that carrot ever was. And the king said, oh no, it isn't a better gift because the farmer gave me the carrot, but you have just given yourself the horse. None of that guile or pretense or agenda seemed to be present in the actions of the Shunammite woman. As I said, she extended generosity, not knowing whom it was that she was giving to. Despite the disappointments of her life, she simply served and gave out of a profound contentment and a genuine generosity. But there's one other thing that we need to notice here as well, and this is where it gets a little bit tricky. Because although we are to give expecting nothing in return, we often do get something in return. <laughs> and that was the case for this woman. She had sown a life of generosity. And the narrative tells us that, essentially, she reaped what she sowed, which ended up benefiting her enormously. I think it's as though her giving became a means of grace for her or to her. By regularly emptying her hands in giving, her empty hands could then be filled by God. Her habitual generosity shaped her. It formed her, allowing her to tune into God's heart, to participate in the life of God's kingdom, and to assume a posture of receptivity so that she could receive from an abundantly generous creator whose character she was reflecting in her own generous action. See, so many people think of God as being a tight-fisted, heavenly miser, I think. A celestial Scrooge, sitting in heaven, surrounded by enormous wealth and power and riches, and he's very, very reluctant to share that with anyone at all. And if you want a blessing, if you want a prayer answered, my goodness, you have to get on your knees and beg and plead and bow and grovel and scrape. And then maybe, just maybe, God might give you a little tiny tidbit from his leftovers. How differently Jesus portrayed a heavenly father 
who loves to give good gifts to his children, who cares deeply about every sparrow that falls to the ground, and who, if he did not spare even his own son, surely will he not also give us all things. As Archbishop French once quipped, prayer is not so much a matter of overcoming God's reluctance, rather it is laying hold of his willingness. This woman received enormous favour and generosity, first in the restoration of her son's life and then in the restoration of her land. And of course, that doesn't simplistically mean that if we live generously and if we commit our ways to God, that he will always give us back everything that we've lost or that uh, he will favour us with amazing generosity whenever we want something. But rather we realise that God's general intention for us is for our good. As the second century church father Irenaeus observed, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. And when we flourish, when we enter into the wholeness that is his plan for us, we, we grow into the potential that our creator intended. And that's an act of worship involving the whole of our lives. And that journey towards flourishing always involves the generous action and provision of God. But that doesn't always look the way we expect it to. It doesn't always happen the way we want it to. I wonder if you've ever heard this little poem. I was trying to remember if I've shared this in chapel before. Apologies if I have. No, no apologies. It's a good poem. Let's do this again. I asked for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked for health that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of people. I was given weakness that I might feel the need for God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing that I asked for, but everything that I needed. None of my prayers were answered. I am, amongst all people, most richly blessed. God's generosity to us doesn't mean that we always get what we want. God's intention for us is for our good, although that often doesn't play out in the way we'd like it to. So we might say then, in summary, two things about generosity from the example of the Shunammite woman. First, the nature of true generosity is to give, expecting nothing in return. And second, our generous God, who is the source of all generosity, invites us to participate in his character and his life by generously giving, regularly emptying our hands so that he can fill them again. One little observation I'd like to finish with, though. In this story in 2 Kings, it's interesting. You could say in many ways that it's a story based on a resurrection. A boy dies and comes back to life. And it's the memory of that resurrection that later brings great blessings to this woman. And it was amazing, an incredible thing that this woman's son was brought back to life again. And that the memory of that resurrection, as Gehazi and the king were recalling Elisha's actions, seemed to be the catalyst for blessing and favour to be released to this woman and her family. But of course, after that, that boy 
lived his life, he grew up, he died um, eventually. But there is another son in the Bible who died and was brought back to life. Only this was an even better resurrection than the Shunammite's son. An infinitely greater resurrection. Because the life that was experienced after this death was an eternal life. Unending both in terms of its quantity and its quality. And the memory of this resurrection doesn't only have the potential to bless just one family... But reflecting the nature of a generous God, it offers blessing to anyone, to everyone who comes to God with a humble heart, who comes to God trusting in God's power to reverse the seemingly irreversible, to breathe life into cold, lifeless hearts, and to transform self-interested people like me into agents of his generous grace. That death and those resurrection are, of course, the ones that we celebrate each time we share communion. If God in Christ did not even spare his own life, but freely gave his life for us, but generously gave his life for us, can we doubt that he will also freely and generously give us all things? Let's pray. Father, we're sorry that we so often forget that you are a generous God who does love us and is working all things together for our good. God, help us to be willing to give, to empty our hands so that you can then fill them. We commit our way to you towards this end as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This podcast was brought to you by Trinity College Queensland honest answers to tough questions. Visit trinity.qld.edu.au to learn more.